Chapter 34 Candace couldn't sleep. The bed was too hot. The pillow was too flat. She kept thinking about the way Brandon disappeared into the house the previous afternoon. Tori had come back a few minutes later saying that Brandon wasn't feeling well and was going to skip the Juneteenth festival. Candace hadn't seen him since. The festival was great. She climbed the rock wall three times and tried a bunch of different foods including PJ's, world famous hush puppies, which were so good that she went back for seconds, and thirds, and pulled pork from a local barbecue restaurant. Candace hung out with Tori and her friends, and they were all so cool and so fun, but she still missed Brandon. Tori kept checking her phone, hoping that Brandon would call and ask to be picked up, but he never did. He didn't come out of his house for church that morning. He didn't drop by that afternoon. She had emailed him a few times from her mom's phone, but he never replied. Finally, after a few more minutes of tossing and turning, Candace got out of her bed. Her iPod was almost dead, but she figured it had enough battery to last through a few songs. She pressed the buds into her ears and scrolled through until she found one of her dad's playlists. Happy Music Volume 1. It was filled with the late 70s and early 80s music he loved. Earth, Wind & Fire, Michael Jackson, Chuck Khan, Tina Marie. The music didn't help Candace fall asleep, but she felt better. She picked up her notes on, the Parker, on Parker's letter. She still believed the third clue was telling them to add something up, that the sum would lead to Parker's inheritance, but the idea was beginning to seem more and more unrealistic. Then again, all of this seemed unrealistic. And if she was really leaving soon, maybe none of it mattered anymore. Maybe it was already too late. She decided to page through the yearbooks again. That was her default when she was stuck. When she was stuck. She to look at the photos. James Parker had to be there, and she was just overlooking him. She reached down by her bed, then realized all of the Wallace yearbooks were on the kitchen table by her laptop. Instead, she grabbed the 1956 Perkins yearbook. She'd already checked all the teachers, but she figured she'd look again. She flipped through, and just like before, there were no teachers who even remotely resembled James Parker. She turned to the photo of the tennis team. Candace sat up. She rubbed her eyes. She looked again. Candace had studied the tennis team photo from the 1957 yearbook, but she hadn't looked at the photo in this yearbook. She hadn't seen any need to. There was a boy in the black and white photo. Tall, lanky, light-skinned. Candace would have almost said that he was white, but that was impossible. White kids weren't allowed to attend Perkins back then. The boy had curly hair. No, not curly, frizzy. Kind of like her classmate Heather's hair when it rained. She found his name in the caption, Reginald Bradley. She flipped through the book until she found his photo. There he was, with the same fair skin and frizzy hair. He was a junior in 1956. He had been a senior in 1957. And if so, why had he stopped playing tennis? Candace sprinted to the kitchen table. She flipped the 1957 yearbook to the senior photos. There he was again. It took an eternity for her laptop to boot up. She opened the photo she, she had downloaded from the internet while at school. The man was older, with more wrinkles and less hair. His nose and cheeks looked a little different, thinner, sharper, but the eyes were the same big, gray, round, and angry. She had found James Parker. Chapter 35, Reginald Bradley, 1957. When Reginald Lawrence Bradley was a child, his grandmother would threaten to pop him with one of 
paper wooden baking spoons anytime you complained about being poor or not having a father or wearing the same pair of jeans day after day. Boy, you're better off than most people, she would say. Later that night, she would slice him an extra thick piece of cornbread with his dinner. His grandmother didn't want to acknowledge it, but Reggie really did have it worse than a lot of his classmates. His mother had run away from home as, as a teenager, only to return three years later with a half-white baby in her arms. She never told anyone who the father was. All Reggie knew was that he lived in New York. His mother promised to take him to Brooklyn to meet his daddy, but when she left home again five years later, Reggie remained in Lambert. It took five more years for Reggie to accept she was never returning for him. Kids liked to tease Reggie about his mother, about his father, about his tattered clothes and golden skin and funny gray eyes. Reggie responded with his fists. He didn't care if his opponent was bigger or smaller. If it was one boy or a group, he wasn't talk taking lit from anyone. Coach Dub was the first person to take Reggie's anger and channel it into something positive. He first put Reggie on the football and basketball teams, but the boy got into too many scuffles with his teammates. Reggie tried track necks and liked it. He didn't have to work with anyone. He only had to compete against himself and the clock. From there, Coach Dub had him try out for tennis with a racket in hand in his hand. And when he could remember to keep his temper and his serve under control, Reggie really thrived. Coach Dub was the best thing that had ever happened to Reggie. He gave Reggie structure and purpose and a means to find personal success. Thanks to Coach Dub, Reggie believed he could be more than just a poor boy from the South. Then he messed everything up by falling in love. To be fair, most of the boys at school were at least a little in love with Siobhan. She was so smart and so kind and extremely easy on the eyes. She never said or did anything that made Reggie feel bad about himself, even when he was sitting at her dining room table, stuffing his face because he didn't know where his next meal would come from. She never laughed at him for wearing the same threadbare clothes. They had only been seeing each other for a year, but it felt like so much longer. Coach Douglas' son had strode into the library like he owned the entire school. Siobhan had given him a word puzzle. Chip didn't know the answer, but Reggie did. His mother used to play word games like that with him before she left. Feeling bold, Reggie left a note at her locker, asking her to meet him in the park, not really expecting her to show up. But she had come, and she kept coming back. And a year later, they were in love. But since her father wouldn't allow her to date, they had to keep their relationship a secret. Outside of group functions, they rarely talked to each other at school. They didn't send each other many notes. Whenever Reggie ate a meal at Coach Dub's house, he was sure to sit as far away from her as he could. He didn't tell any of his friends, and neither did she. But eventually Coach Dub discovered their courtship. He responded by kicking Reggie off the tennis team in the middle of the season and threatened to send Siobhan away for her last year of high school. Reggie wanted to run off with her, but Siobhan had always been the smarter of the two, and she wisely turned him down. Reggie didn't believe he had anything to offer her. He was intelligent, but that wouldn't put food on the table. He was kind, especially toward children, but that wouldn't cover the rent. Reggie had no real way to support her, provide for her, protect her. He knew she deserved better than him. Still, he hoped Coach Dub would come round to give Reggie a real opportunity with his daughter. When Coach Douglas approached him about playing in the exhibition game, he thought he finally had his chance. But he didn't. On the night of the game after they'd won, Coach Dub shook Reg Reggie's hand, then leaned in and told him to leave his daughter alone. A poor... High yellow country dumb negro like you will never be good enough for little dub, he said. When Reggie saw a car behind the high horse later that night, 
He foolishly thought that maybe it was Coach Douglas coming to check in on the boy's battered ego. Instead, three men in mass jumped out of the vehicle. The largest men wielded a knife, while the other two carried baseball bats. Reggie took off running down a maze of alleys, his feet stumbling in the darkness. He paused every few feet to check a door, hoping to find one unlocked. Finally, he hid behind a row of garbage bins and held his breath. Seconds later, two sets of footsteps rushed by, kneeling lower. Reggie felt around the ground, looking for anything he could use as a weapon. Taking a chance, he stood and opened one of the garbage lids. Inside the bin, sitting on top of the trash, was a broken mop handle. As he picked it up, he heard more footsteps. Guys, I found him, someone yelled. Reggie took off again, this time heading back to the bar. The owner kept a gun inside. Maybe he could find it, but before he could reach the back door, someone grabbed Reggie by the arm. It was the largest attacker, the one with the knife. He swiped at Reggie, tearing a gash in Reggie's side. The man was too big, with arms that were too long. Reggie waited for the man to swing again, but this time, instead of jumping backwards to avoid contact, Reggie stepped forward, allowing the man's forearm, not the knife, to make contact with Reggie's side. Clamping his arm down, Reggie pinned the man's hand to his side while stabbing the man's face with a mop handle. The stick, with its jagged, sharp end, sank into the attacker's face, into his eye socket. The man screamed. He dropped his knife and pulled away from Reggie, flopping on the ground like a fish, gasping for air. The man continued to howl as he pressed his hand against his eye. While Reggie stood there, trying to decide what to do, the other two attackers approached him from behind. One hit him in the leg while the other went for Reggie's shoulder. The boy fell and covered his head as the men began to strike him with their bats. Then a shotgun bl bat blast pierced the air. Reggie's attackers stumbled away from him. They grabbed the large one, still writhing on the ground, and escaped. A few seconds later, Coach Douglas was there, helping Reggie to his feet and dragging him to his car. Reggie's eyesight was blurry, and his chest hurt every time he breathed, but he was alive. Coach Douglas took Reggie to Mr. Smith's house in the country. An hour or so later, a nurse showed up. She cleaned his wounds and stitched the gashes on the side and forehead. He had two broken ribs, a dislocated shoulder, and a sprained wrist. How you feeling, son? Coach Douglas asked Reggie the next afternoon. Reggie winced as he sat up in the guest bed. I've had better days. I'm sore all over, and my eyes are still a little blurry. At least you've got both of them. Word is, Marion Allen was rushed to the hospital last night with a right nasty facial in injury. The doctors tried, but they couldn't save his eye. So it was the Allens, he said. I figured as much. I just wish I'd gotten Marion's other eye as well. He grimaced as he rubbed his shoulder. Did they attack the other fellas? The boys are fine. We got them out of the city. Coach Douglas hesitated, then sat down beside Reggie. But they jumped Big Dub. His injuries are a lot worse than yours. Broken jaw, missing teeth. Not sure how many blows he took to the head from those bars, from those bats. Is he in the hospital? He shook his head. We thought it best to go ahead and get him and his family out of town. They're in Maryland, staying with Leanne's sister. For how long? Reggie asked. The thought of being apart from Siobhan hurt worse than his body. Hard to say. Dub wants to come back, but I don't see that happening. The administration at Perkins found out about the exhibition game. I'm not sure he'll have a job waiting for him if he returns. Shoot, I might not even have a job. Wallace High has already fired Tommy Turner. Coach Douglas rubbed his eyes. The sad thing is, I'd bet Tommy would still have his job if they'd won. Reggie didn't care at all about the game right then. What about Siobhan? They didn't hurt her, did they? She's fine, Coach Douglas said. The son, you need to forget about her. Like I said, they ain't coming back. It ain't safe for them here anymore. You neither. Not after what you did to Marion Allen. Are you going to take me to Maryland too? 
Damn it, boy. Enough about Siobhan. I don't care how bad Dub was whipped. He ain't never gonna accept you. Reggie didn't argue. The truth was the truth. He leaned back into the headboard and let out a long, slow breath. He had done everything Coach Dub asked him to do, even down to intentionally losing points during the match. In Coach's eyes, all Reggie was good for was hitting a ball or running around the track for a second. He wondered if things would be different if Coach Dub passed away from his injuries. Then he pushed that thought out of his head. He hated the man, but didn't want him dead. But why can't Siobhan and Mrs. Leanne come back? The Allens are mad at me and her daddy, not them. Doesn't Siobhan want to finish up her senior year at Perkins? And Mrs. Leanne is so involved in the church. Coach Douglas looked up at the ceiling and mumbled something to himself, then leaned in close to Reggie and told him about the doll. Its dark skin and red lipstick, the words etched into it, the noose around its neck. Reggie did not want Enoch Washington dead. He could not say the same about the Allens. So what's the plan? Reggie asked. How do we get them back? He sat up taller and winced when the pain hit his side. I'm not afraid to fight. Don't you understand? It's over, Coach Doug Douglas replied. This isn't another tennis game. This is real life. They won. But we can't... You're just a kid. What, you're going to take on the Allen family? You might as well dig your own grave now and dig a grave for your grandma and everyone else you love, he said. The best you can do is move away, start over, and live your life. What? Move to Chicago? Detroit? No. I think you should join the military, like I did. Reggie laughed. No offense, coach, but there's a big difference between the way the army treats you and how they treat me. I know, he said, but it doesn't have to be that way. I don't understand. You will in time. He rose from the edge of the bed. Get dressed. We're leaving tonight. Reggie returned home, long enough to grab some clothes and kiss his grandmother goodbye. Then Coach Douglas instructed him to lie down in the back seat until they reached the state line. He had no idea where they were going. A few hours later, they stopped to grab some snacks and use the restroom. Want a Coke? Coach Douglas asked. Reggie frowned. No thanks. Where are we? Georgia, hopefully. We'll make Mississippi by morning. What's there? Patient, son. You don't have to lie down anymore, but you'd better stay in the back. People don't like to see colored kids riding up front with white folk. Coach Douglas found a Negro gospel station outside of Tuscaloosa. He didn't have a great voice, but that didn't stop him from singing along. At one point, he caught Reggie staring at him. What? Didn't think I knew all these hymns? I didn't know white people sang songs like that. They don't. Dawn was beginning to break when they pulled up to a large farmhouse. Coach Douglas instructed Reggie to remain in the car. After a few minutes, he returned with an older white woman. What happened to his face? The woman asked. Her stringy brown-gray hair whipped in the wind. Liver spots covered her hands. Long story, Coach Douglas said. So what do you think? She looked Reggie up and down. Hmm. Don't know if Walter'll do it. Let us stay long enough for me to talk to him. We'll hide in the barn. I don't know, Vern. A lot of people will be right surprised if they see you driving around here. Would cause issues for all of us. Even better reason for me to hide out for a while, he replied. Reggie's a good kid, Rita. He deserves a chance at a better life. Who was this woman? Reggie wanted to ask. And why did she call Coach Douglas Vern? Go on, pull your car to the back, she said. Walter will be home soon. Reggie and Coach Douglas parked farther into the property, then walked to the barn. The silence was thick enough to slice 
Finally, after sitting on a bale of hay, Reggie asks, Now will you tell me what's going on? First, let's get a few things straight, Coach said. I'm about to tell you something that no one knows. Not Chip, not my wife, if you even think about breathing a word of this to anyone. A word of what? I will be 48 in three weeks, Coach Douglas continued. However, according to my birth certificate, I turned 45 in April. Long after I was Adam Douglas, I was a kid. Long before I was Adam Douglas, I was a kid named Vernon Thompson. I'm three quarters white. The other quarter, Reggie slowly stood. You're colored. He nodded. I grew up around here, lived with my uncle. He used to knock me around when he was drunk, which was all the time. But it wasn't like that. Like I had anywhere else to go. My mama died when I was a baby, and my daddy didn't want anything to do with me, even though he lived right down the road. Only thing I lived for was working this farm in the summer. This land has belonged to Rita's family for five generations. Walter was born in Philadelphia. They met in college up north, and somehow Rita convinced him to move to Mississippi. Walter never was much of a farmer, but he was a good doctor, and thanks to those Quakers, he had some pretty radical notions on how Negroes should be treated. So did Rita. They always hired colored kids to help out for the summer, paid us and fed us too. It was better than shining shoes. One morning, when I was working the farm by myself, a family came looking for Walter and Rita. They were away in the city, so I kept the family company till they got back home. You know what that family told Rita about me? They said, you have such a fine son. He must have gotten all his charm from your side of the family. Adam Douglas slapped his knee. Here's the truth about people. We make a lot of assumptions about each other. People don't think you're colored just because of your skin. They think you're colored because your grandmother is dark-skinned and you attend a Negro school and a Negro church and because you're poor. But what if those same people passed you on the street when you were dressed in a sharp suit? What if they met you in the white part of town? What if you were driving a Cadillac instead of walking? What would they see then? Coach Douglas began to pace. As an old country doctor, Walter dealt with lots of births and every once in a while an infant death. It took a while, but Rita eventually convinced him to tweak one of those birth certificates so I could have a new life. And poof, Vernon Thompson died and Adam Douglas was reborn. I can't pretend to be white, Reggie said. It ain't pretending. You become white? You don't fake being white in public, then turn back into a Negro when you're at home. You have to commit all the way. But if you do, think of all the opportunities. I was able to join the military. I learned a real trade, moving up in the ranks, and then I got my degree. You could do the same. But I could never return to Lambert. Maybe you ain't figured it out yet. But you can't go back to Lambert anyway. You took Marion Allen's eye. You think he's just going to forget that? And why go back in the first place? In Lambert, you'll always be a poor, pitiful Negro. What about my grandma? Richie said. His grandmother was all right now, but her health wouldn't hold up forever. I'll watch out for her, Coach Douglas said. Believe me, she'd want you to take this opportunity. Reggie picked up a stick and began drawing in the dirt. I don't know, Coach. Coach Douglas grabbed the stick from Reggie and broke it in half. One of the guys from my army company is now the vice president of a bank. Another owns his own law firm, and another is a judge. He stuffed his hands in his pockets. You go to the military and then attend a good school on the GI Bill, and you can do the same. 
As smart as you are, you could write your own ticket, have more money than God himself if you wanted it. Coach Douglas stepped out, leaving Reggie to contemplate what he would do if he were rich and powerful. It didn't take long for him to figure it out. Reggie would use his money to impress Siobhan once and for all. He'd provide her with ev her every want. He could already see himself walking up to her while dressed in a crisp army uniform, a grin on his face, and a bouquet of roses in his arm. He shook his head, not an army uniform, but a brand new three-piece suit, his paycheck from his office job tucked in his coat pocket, or instead of just working at the office, maybe he would even own the company. But he didn't limit his daydream to Siobhan. He would also get back at the Allens. A single eye wasn't enough to make up for what they did to him and Coach Dub. What they threatened to do to Siobhan, they had to pay. Finally, Reggie stepped out of the barn and found Coach Douglas. I'm in, Reggie said. How do we start? Although it was fairly easy to convince Reggie to go through with the plan, it was much harder to get Walter Hamilton to agree. He would lose his license if he was discovered, but that was the least of his worries. The idea of what those good old boys might do to Rita to exact their revenge made him break into hives. But although Rita was worried, she also what she was also determined and finally after a week of prodding she convinced walter to look through the files to find someone who might be a good fit meanwhile coach douglas and reggie worked to create a credible backstory for the persona reggie was to become coach douglas also schooled reggie on how to pass as white how to talk with the confidence of a man who could do anything he wanted in this country how to resist making a scene when someone told a racist joke how to sit calmly at the front of a bus, or walk into a restaurant that was for whites only. How to look people, how to look white people boldly in the eye and see them as peers, not the enemy. And when necessary, how to put down and further degrade his own people in order to protect his new identity. Two weeks later, Reggie left Mississippi for Killeen, Texas, where he would be stationed at the Fort Hood Army Base. He'd already had his hair shaved into a low buzz cut to hide his natural curls. If anyone asked, he was to say he got his tan skin from working outside. When he stepped onto the bus for the trip, he sat at the front like all the other white people. He looked them in the eye, trying to be kind and helpful. And when they asked him his name, he smiled as wild, wildly as he could and said, I'm James Parker, pleased to meet you. Chapter 36 Candace didn't bother trying to go to sleep. That would have been impossible. While waiting for morning, she got her, mo her mother's phone, searched the web for any mention of Reginald Bradley. She couldn't find any information about him, which wasn't surprising. Why would anything exist if he ceased to? Finally, six o'clock came. Her hand shook as she punched in the number. It was probably still too early to call, but she'd ask for forgiveness later. Hello? Miss Jones said, yawning. Anne, is something wrong? Hi, it's actually me, Candace. Sorry to be calling at this time in the morning. Is Brandon awake? I have something really important to show him. It'll only take a... Whoa, slow down there, Miss Jones said. Unfortunately, Brandon can't come to the phone. He's on punishment for the next few days. Oh, okay. It took her a second to process this, and then another few seconds to formulate a response. So, I can't talk to him at all? Not even for a quick minute? I'll tell him that you called, sweetie. You can see him on Wednesday. 
Candace hung up. She wondered what Brandon had done to get grounded for so long. She returned to her room and stared at the picture of Reginald Bradley. Her confidence didn't waver. She was sure he and James Parker were the same person. But why had he become someone else? She assumed life was easier back then if you were white. You could go to any school or live in any neighborhood. She thought about how Tori slowed down when she drove and how Mr. Rittenhauer had accused them of breaking into the school, all because of their skin tone. Life would have been like that for Reginald Bradley too, and probably much worse in the 50s, but not for James Parker. Candace cracked open one of the tennis books. She checked out from the library. She kept thinking about Reginald Bradley at the secret tennis game that night. How had they played in the dark? Did they keep score and use all that confusing tennis terminology? And how did a simple tennis game lead to all those people being attacked and run out of Lambert? The house phone rang about two hours later. Candace ran back to the kitchen, hoping it was Brandon. Hey, Candace, Tori said. Wanna come over? I thought Brandon... He's upstairs, and Mom just left. See you in a bit. As usual, the door was unlocked. I'm in the kitchen, Tori yelled. Candace held her notebook and the yearbook tightly in her hands as she entered the room. Tori sat the table, set the sat the table with a bowl of lumpy oatmeal in front of her. She was reading The Westing Game. Pretty good so far, she said, shutting the book. Here's the deal. I don't know what you have to tell my brother, but it has to be really important to call here at six in the morning. So in exchange for an additional month of car washing, I have agreed to serve as an intermediary between you two. Candace sat down and opened the yearbook. I think I found James Parker. She flipped to the page and pointed to Reginald Bradley. That's him. Tori turned the book to get a better look at it. I thought Parker was white. I think he was only pretending to be white. Hmm, just like Imitation of Life. That's an old movie Mom likes about a girl who passes for white. Tori tapped the phone. Let's say you're right. Now what? We should call Ellie Farmer. I think she knows more than she's letting on. I agree, Tori said. She slid her cell phone across the table. Make the call. What about Brandon? I don't want to do it without him. I think he'd understand. This is a big deal, and you don't exactly have time to waste. Candace paged through her notebook until she found Mrs. Farmer's phone number. She picked up the phone and started to dial, then ended the call before completing the number. I want to wait for him, Candace said, giving the phone back to Tori. He would do the same for me. Tori rolled her eyes as she rode from the table. Hold on, I'll be back in a second. Candace heard the familiar sound of creaking wood as Tori ran upstairs. She returned with Brandon in tow. He smiled at Candace and offered her a slight wave, but didn't speak. Tori handed the phone to Candace again. Brandon's only down here to listen to the conversation. He's not supposed to talk at all. And the second we hear Granddad's car turning into the yard, he hightails it back to his room. Candace searched Brandon's face, hoping to see a hint of... She didn't know. Maybe she was looking for a clue as to why he had been grounded, or how he felt about her returning to Atlanta, or how he felt, period. Brandon held her gaze for a few seconds, giving off no information, then sat down. Candace quickly dialed the number. She turned on the speakerphone so they could all hear. Mr. Farmer answered, then passed the phone to his wife. Hey, Candace, Ellie Farmer said. How are you doing, dear? I'm good. We're all good. Candace took a shaky breath. I was hoping to ask you a few questions about one of the students at Perkins, Reginald Bradley. Oh, 
Reggie Bradley, you say? Candace could hear the change in the woman's voice. She was certainly more guarded. What do you want to know about him? Did he... Did he disappear, but not die? Like, maybe he became someone else? There was a long pause. What makes you think that? Ellie said. Candace looked at Brandon. Both his eyebrows were raised. I, I, we, we think that maybe, well, we aren't for sure. I ain't getting any younger, she said. If you figured it out, then say it. Brandon lurched forward. He is James Parker, isn't he? Tori snapped her fingers and shushed her brother. Oh, hey, Brandon, didn't know you were there. Ellie sighed. Yes, you're right. Reggie Bradley is James Parker. I'm sorry I lied, but there are some secrets that aren't mine to share. But since you figured it out anyway, Reggie was the player who got beat up along with Coach Dub. Candace stared at the phone. She wished she were in front of Mrs. Farmer so she could see her face. Coach Douglas told us that Reggie had found a job in Georgia, she continued, and then a few months later, we heard he died in an accident. We didn't think too much about Reggie after that. Life went on, you know. Can't spend forever grieving for folks that are already gone. And he never came back home, Candace asked. Never saw his family again, or his friends? Not as far as I can tell, Ellie said. Coach Douglas would check in on Reggie's grandmother. We were all worried about her, an old woman living by herself cover a few of her bills on months she was short but lizzie bradley was a tough old bird she outlived just about everybody else her age she didn't have any family so started dropping by mount carmel to visit her this was years ago back in the early 80s when they didn't have a dedicated building for the seniors ellie coughed then paused to take a sip of something candace hoped it was water but was pretty sure it was something sugary and caffeinated okay where was i Ellie asked. Oh, yeah. When Reggie's grandmother passed, me and some others pitched in to take care of her funeral. Turned out, it had already been paid for by an anonymous donor. I didn't think much about it. Time passed, and then one day I received a $10,000 check for each of my grands, specifically to help cover college. Didn't know where it came from. Whoever had written the checks had made them impossible to trace. Wasn't until even later that I pieced it all together. When all the fuss started about donations to the school and church and such, one look at a picture of James Parker, and I knew it was Reggie. It was the eyes. He always had funny eyes. Did Siobhan ever learn who he really was? Candace asked. And did you know that they were a couple? The line was quiet for a few seconds. I guess I might as well tell it all. Siobhan was never officially seeing anyone in high school, but she was sneaking around with someone, though she'd never tell me who. I had to be her alibi a few times. Always figured out, figured it was Coach Douglas's son, but it could have been Reggie. That would have made a lot more sense now that I think about it. She had a pretty face. She had a pretty fancy funeral as well. Why didn't you ever say anything? Tori asked. Candace was so busy staring at the phone and listening she'd forgotten that Tori was beside her. You don't go off and start spilling secrets about somebody after they've given you that much money. Plus, who was I going to tell? Everybody he cared about was dead by then. She coughed into the phone. <clears throat> I didn't blame Reggie. He had a chance at a better life. Lord knows he got dealt a bad hand. His mama was a floozy and alcoholic. He never met his daddy. Didn't want anything to do with a black baby. That made Candace think of something. His father wasn't one of the Allens, was he? She asked, 
her stomach twisting at the thought. Oh, Lord, no. That would have been even worse. His daddy lives somewhere in New York, I think. She coughed again, this time much harder than before. I'm sorry, my throat's not feeling so well. I need to get off this phone, but y'all call back tomorrow if you have any more questions, other questions. They said their goodbyes and hung up the phone. Okay, back upstairs, Tori said to her brother. Brendan's eyes practically bugged out of his head. Upstairs, his sister repeated. He huffed as he rose from the table, but before he left the room, he offered another small smile and waved to Candace. I'll let you know if Brandon has any worthwhile thoughts, Tori said once he left. He spun the phone around. She, she spun the phone around on the table. That's such an amazing story. And sad. Do you think he ever talked to Siobhan or his grandmother again? I hope so. I couldn't imagine not seeing my parents again or my other family and friends. Believe me, there are plenty of jerk fathers out there who are just fine not seeing their families. She cut her eyes at Candace. Sorry for the snark. You and your dad are on much better terms than me and my biological. Yeah, maybe, Candace said, but he's hiding something from me. All parents keep secrets from their kids. She slowly spun her phone on the table again. What do you think he's hiding? He's seeing someone, Candace said. A woman named Danielle. Um, are you sure? I mean, how do you know? I overheard him and mom talking about it. You could always ask him, give him a chance to explain everything. Candace eyed Tori. Do you know something that you're not telling me? Just some things I've overheard as well, she said. You should talk to your dad, seriously. Sometimes we have to remind our parents that we understand how the world works. She checked this time. You should go. She checked the time. You should go. Granddad will be here soon, and I don't think he'd agree with my liberal interpretation of Brandon's punishment. Candace grabbed the yearbook and rose from the table. What did Brandon do to get that was so bad to get himself grounded? Tori shook her head. You can ask him on Wednesday. 